Amen. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we want to look again at, at another passage that helps us to remember things that by now most of us are very familiar with, and yet the reality is God works through familiar truth to deepen our trust and to deepen our love for him and for each other and to appreciate more what he's done for us. And so that's why we focus on these things at Christmas time and at other times as well. And so I want to read for us, beginning in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1 and on into chapter 2. We'll read actually the whole chapter of chapter 2 because what we find here is the account of Matthew. It's one account of the Christmas story. And so we want to look at what Matthew has to tell us about this a mysterious and wonderful event that took place long, long ago and yet has uh, eternal significance. So beginning in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray again. Father, we do pray and ask that you would bless your word to the good of our souls. Please help me to speak well of you and highlight what your word says and to be faithful to your word. Help us to see the the true uh, meaning of it and the application of it in our lives. Uh, Please give us grace to listen, to listen closely, to listen well, to listen as if this is the word of God, which it is, to listen as if it's your word to each of us individually, which it is. Help us, Father, during this time, and may you be honored and glorified, and may we find our joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, You know, at this time of year, we often ask the question, uh, what are you getting for Christmas, or what do you want for Christmas? Uh, As I thought about Matthew's account of the Christmas story, I think uh, maybe a more fitting question would be, what don't you want for Christmas? Uh, You might want your two front teeth for Christmas, or you might want a hippopotamus or something like that. Uh, But what don't you want for Christmas? I asked my kids this morning, so what don't you want for Christmas? And uh, uh, the first thing they said was diabetes. (laughs) So, um, you know, I guess that's one of the threats of all the food we eat at uh, Christmas time. But uh, it is a valid question. What don't you want for uh, Christmas? Well, what we uh, find, I think, in, a, in various ways in Matthew's account is, in a way, our thinking about gifts that we might receive at Christmas that we would consider either worthless or harmless or harmful. And so that's what I want us to think about initially. But when you think about uh, just the four Gospels themselves and how they handle the birth narrative, it's, it's very interesting In one sense, it's like watching a Hallmark movie like some of the ladies did on Friday night. You see various themes in each of the stories or various details that are repeated, but uh, they're still different stories. It's, uh, as someone has said, it's sort of like four different people on four different corners at an intersection watching a wreck happen. And you see four different perspectives on that. Uh, With regard to Mark, he doesn't include any of the details of the birth of Jesus, but what he does talk about is why Jesus came. It focuses all on primarily the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, which is why he came. So there is, um, in a sense, a birth narrative. It's the narrative of implications of why Jesus came. For John, John starts back way before uh, Mary and Joseph. He starts with, uh, in the beginning was the Word. He starts with Jesus being God and how God came into the world in the person of Jesus. Luke actually focuses on the story from the perspective of Mary and highlights the fact that Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. Matthew focuses on Joseph in the story and highlights the fact that Jesus is the king who came into the world. And so we want to look at what Matthew has to say because Matthew emphasizes the fact that there were those who um, treated Jesus like a white elephant gift. Uh, Some of you might have uh, some white elephant gifts to give uh, this Christmas. I think the whole idea of a white elephant gift has sort of um, evolved over time, and it can be something that uh, somebody would really want. You know, we can give a white elephant gift, uh, and people would be glad to have it, you know, and might even steal it from other people, that kind of thing. And yet originally, as I understand it, and at least when I was growing up, a white elephant gift was typically something that 
you didn't want. And it was maybe something was funny, but it wasn't necessarily something that you really wanted. And the whole idea of a white elephant gift appears to come from uh, the fact that years ago, in places like India and Thailand and other places, uh, they actually venerated uh, white elephants, literal white elephants. Um, And yet there was something about those white elephants that um, on the one hand, they venerated them, but if you got one, it tended to be very expensive to keep, and it didn't give you any profit. And so that's why some have talked about the white elephant as uh, having earned a reputation as a burdensome beast, one that required constant care and feeding, but never brought a single cent to its owner. And it's understood uh, that in Thailand, some of the kings would give white elephants as gifts to other people, but they would give them to people that they wanted to ruin. So that they were hoping that the cost of maintaining the uh, sacred mammal would drive its new owner to the poor house. So that seems to be the background of the white uh, elephant gift. At best, it was something that had no profit. It was worthless, no value. At worst, it was meant to ruin you and harm you, and it was a curse. And the reality is that we as sinners naturally look at the gift of God's Son that way. We look at the gift of Christmas as, at at best, of no value, no real value, and at worst, something that is actually uh, a threat to me, something that would be harmful to me. And we actually see this in the, the account that Matthew gives with regard to the Christmas story because Joseph initially sees uh, Mary's pregnancy as a white elephant gift. Herod definitely sees it as a white elephant gift. And even the chief priests and scribes who say, you know, uh, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, they don't even go to find Jesus when they hear that somebody thinks he might have been born. And so they're at best indifferent to uh, the coming of Christ. And so we have the reality that, as it says in John 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And yet, naturally, apart from grace, uh, we see it as a white elephant gift. The question is, why? Why would we see it that way? And I think that's also reflected in uh, Matthew's account of the Christmas story. If you look at verses 18 through 25, I think one of the first things that we can um, highlight with regard to why we naturally and sinfully, apart from God's grace in our lives, would see the coming of Christ as a negative thing or a worthless thing is because of ignorance. We see in verses 18 through 25 the account of Joseph who um, is the um, betrothed husband of Mary. Um, Mary and Joseph were not living together. A betrothal was a very, very serious engagement. It's not the kind of engagement that we have. It was basically a commitment to be married and to honor that commitment until it was consummated. And so it was such a serious thing that you could not become unengaged without divorce proceedings. And so it's very different than what we think of in terms of an engagement, yet similar in certain ways. We see in this part of the story that Joseph hears that Mary is pregnant, that she's going to have a baby. And he responds by thinking about How best should I divorce Mary? Which means either she did not tell him about the visit of the angel, or she did tell him and he found it too uh, unbelievable to believe. And so therefore, he can only come to the conclusion that she's been unfaithful, that she's committed adultery, because she was technically married at that point. And so therefore, he being a righteous man, wanting to do the right thing, um, 
says, you know, I think the right thing to do is to divorce Mary. And yet he loved Mary and he did not want to disgrace her. And so there are two ways you could go through this divorce process. You could actually file a lawsuit and publicly shame them. Or you could quietly give them a bill of divorcement. And he decided, I'm just going to quietly divorce Mary because I don't want to bring any more hurt and pain into her life uh, than is necessary. And so Joseph thought the birth of Jesus was the result of sin. And yet as we read on, the angel appears to Joseph and says, no, the birth of Jesus is for the sake of sin. It's not the result of sin, it's for the sake of sin. And so the, the angel appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, and uh, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's why we proclaim the virgin birth of Christ. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His birth was not the result of sin, even though later on the uh, religious leaders would accuse him of being an illegitimate child. It was not the result of sin. It was the result of God providing the answer to sin in the person of Jesus. And the question is, how in the world could one man deliver um, millions and millions and millions of people, who knows how many, a number beyond count from their sins? How could he do that? And that's where it comes in. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus could save the world, could bring joy to the world because he was more than just a man. He was God in the flesh. And so when we ask the question, why would we reject so great a gift One of the reasons is we don't understand. We don't understand what God is doing. We don't see what God is up to. It's like the guy who loved books and he was talking to his friend and his friend said, you know, um, I uh, found this Bible in my attic and it's evidently been in our family for a long, long time. And I... uh, I noticed that, uh, you know, somebody named Guten something had printed it and I I just got rid of it because I couldn't read it. And the guy who loved books says, what are you talking about? That was printed by uh, Gutenberg. It's probably one of the first books that was printed. And it said, uh, you know, it was probably worth a million dollars or more. And that guy says, you know, I don't think it was worth anything because there was writing all over it. Some guy named Martin Luther had scribbled in the, the edges of the Bible. You know, it wasn't worth anything. The guy obviously didn't understand what he had. He didn't understand what he had been given uh, through his family. And the reality is, we are much more ignorant than we think we are. We think we understand so much more than we do. And the book of Job is fascinating to me. Because Job was the most righteous man on the planet. That didn't mean he understood everything. That didn't mean he uh, knew everything. And that didn't mean that he couldn't be quick to accuse God of doing something wrong, which is what he did. And the Bible tells us that as you read through the whole story, you come to the end, and at the end of the book, God does not tell Job why he was going through the suffering he was going through. He simply tells Job, you're not in a position to evaluate what you're going through. You need to trust me when I tell you that I love you and I'm doing it for your good. Because that's what basically God does. He comes to Job and he says in chapter 38, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? What does that mean? You're talking a lot, but you don't know anything about what you're talking about. You don't understand. He goes on to say, now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. You tell me what's really going on. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. What was Job's problem? He did not understand what was going on and he was rejecting 
what God was doing. And yet God was gifting him with exactly what he needed. He was gifting him exactly what he needed. And so one of the things we have to realize is that because we're sinners and we're fallen, we should not be so quick to think we understand what's happening in our own life or in someone else's life. Now, where the word of God gives us light, then we can say, okay, I understand in light of what the word of God says. But as Calvin would say, when, the, when God shuts his mouth, we need to shut our mouths. Which means if God hasn't told me, then I don't know. But I do know what God has told me. And that's why God shows up to Joseph and says, uh, you need some more information. And he tells him what he needs to know, which is an encouragement to me because there are so many things that I wish I had more information in regard to. And yet I have to believe that I have all the information I need to trust God and to love people. Have all that I need. And if I don't have all I need, I can expect that God will give it to me in his good time. That's what he did for Joseph. And so we just have to be careful of um, thinking that we understand everything lest we reject the gift of God's Son and lest we reject all the other gifts that God gives us in our lives. Then if we go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, we can highlight another problem that I think we can have with regard to the gift of God's Son, most importantly, as well as other gifts God might be giving us, and that is the problem of fear. We not only have a problem with being ignorant or lacking understanding, but we also can feel very, very threatened by the very gift of God. A gift of God from his heart of love, a gift of God for our good, and yet we can feel threatened by it. That's what we see with Herod. Herod was the king of uh, Judea, appointed by the Roman um, government. Uh, he was really a great man in a lot of ways. He was great in building. In fact, they would say that the temple that he um, built uh, during his time of the reign was actually greater than Solomon's temple. It was really, really spectacular. So he was a great builder. He was also great in administration and organization. Uh, he was great in uh, war. He was great in collecting taxes and those kinds of things. But he was an evil man. He was great in cruelty. He was very capable, very crafty, but very, very cruel. In fact, he had one of his wives killed. He had three of his sons killed. Uh, He would kill anyone who he felt was a threat to his throne. In fact, as he was about to die, he ordered his servants to arrest the principal men of uh, Judea, uh, lock them up, and then when he died, he wanted all of them to be killed because he knew nobody would mourn uh, because of his death, but they wanted the, he wanted them to mourn at his death because of the other men that were killed. He was truly an evil, evil man. Well, In the story, we have the Magi come into Jerusalem, and the Magi were evidently royal advisors. And if you read the book of Daniel, you'll see that Daniel was one of those royal advisors, and there were magicians and others that were included uh, in that category. But basically, they were consulted, just like when Nebuchadnezzar has his dreams and uh, and uh, other things, he consults them for advice and understanding. And evidently the Magi were in this same group of people. They specialized in the stars, astronomy, astrology, and that's why we see them in the story. Somehow, uh, believing that they saw a star that was related to uh, the land of Judah and the rise of a king in Judea. And the reality is we don't know how all that came about. Some would tie it back to Daniel. They would say the testimony of Daniel in the Babylonian kingdom and in the Persian kingdom uh, was passed down and that they came to know about the true God through that. There are other possibilities as well, but I think that's a 
That's one good possibility is that the testimony of Daniel was something that they had seen and observed and maybe found out about other prophecies in the Old Testament. And so we have the Magi showing up and they're beginning to go around town asking, hey, we're here to see the newborn king. Where is he? And eventually Herod hears that these guys have shown up asking about this king who's been born or this baby who's been born a king. And it says he is very disturbed. He's upset. He's frightened. He's shaken up. He's alarmed. And um, as Calvin said, all tyrants are cowards. What does that mean? It means that those who want absolute authority are afraid of losing that authority. And they will do whatever they have to do to maintain their authority. So if they see anything that could, could potentially threaten their authority or protect or prevent them from gaining the authority that they want and they desire, they will try to eliminate it. And that's what we see here. Um, Herod was a tyrant. And so he calls for the chief priests and the scribes. And he says, um, after he found out from the Magi when the star appeared, so he could find out a little bit about how old the baby might be. He calls for the religious leaders and he says, okay, where was this baby supposed to be born? And they tell him Bethlehem. And as I've already mentioned, it's interesting, Herod, neither Herod nor the religious leaders go to Bethlehem. You would think if they really wanted to worship him, if they really believed the prophecy, if they really thought that this might be the arrival of the Messiah, that they would at least go and check it out and find out, but they don't. And yet the thing that he says about uh, this baby, as they quote uh, from the Old Testament in verse 6, it says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, how did Herod hear that uh, probably something like this for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will beat the daylights out of my people Israel who will ruin them who will harm them who will cheat them who will steal from them who will make their lives miserable that's how he responded that's how we naturally respond to the birth of a king why because it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, we eat from the forbidden fruit because we will be as gods. We will be as kings. We will be in charge. That's the fundamental issue with our sin is that we don't want God to be in charge. We don't want a king because we feel threatened by him. That's what Satan said to Adam and Eve. God doesn't. Uh, really have your best interest at heart. He's keeping something good from you. You are threatened by submitting to him. You can only find true happiness if you reject his rule over your life. And yet the picture of a shepherd is the picture of one who lays down his life to protect the sheep, to provide for the sheep, to love the sheep. A ruler who will shepherd, not a ruler who will beat or rob and so Herod responds um, out of the fear of losing his power and authority because in his mind, that's the only way he can be truly happy is to be in charge. And so we see him being very disturbed at what's happening. And so he deceptively sends the Magi to Bethlehem and says, let me know when you find the baby so I can come worship too which is an interesting thing in light of the fact that um, someone has said the state often uh, will portray itself as pro-Christian when it's really anti-Christian. And if you look at the history of, of Nazi Germany, it's exactly what they did. They, the Nazis portrayed themselves as pro-Christian, but they were very much anti-Christ. And so Herod's doing the same thing. And so the Magi... They go to find Jesus and evidently the star that they saw uh, in the east 
had not led them all the way, but suddenly appears again to them and somehow actually in an extraordinary way, must have been an extraordinary star, uh, led them right to the very house where Jesus was, which implies that they weren't still, still in the stable, that there was a period of time. Because they're going to leave to go to Egypt, but we know from Luke that they actually went to the temple after 40 days to uh, give the offering that a, a woman who had given birth was supposed to give. So it, it had been uh, a little while since Jesus was born. And they find Jesus, and instead of um, Jesus giving them gifts, they gave him gifts. And the gifts that they gave was were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And as been said, the goal was probably to highlight that he was a king. And the frankincense was actually uh, incense. It's another way of saying pure incense that was used in worship. So it highlighted that he was God. And the myrrh was something that was used to make life better for humans and even to be given to them at their death, which highlighted his humanity. So it honored him as God and man and king. And so we see all this taking place and the Magi are warned uh, not to go back. And then Herod hears that they, or finds out one way or the other, that they haven't uh, followed through with coming back to him. And so he is enraged. And the interesting thing that I think all of us can relate to is that a lot of times our anger is based on fear. And anger can result in all kinds of murder. may not result in physical murder, but it can result in killing people in our minds, killing people with our words, as well as maybe hurting people in other ways, and maybe ultimately uh, murder itself like what we find in um, the case of Herod, which reminds us of the importance of how we respond to God's gifts in our lives. If we fear it, it can make us angry, it can make us murderous in various ways. And so what does Herod do? He kills all the babies two years old and under in Bethlehem and in the vicinity. Now, some people have uh, had some pretty amazing estimates on how high that uh, total might have been. You know, there are those who said 14,000 babies. But the reality is that Bethlehem was small. And it's probably uh, more in the range of 20 babies or so, which 20 is 20 too many, but it's still not 14,000. And yet, why did he do what he did? Some would say it's because the, the Magi said, it's been two years since we saw the star. But the others would say, knowing Herod, he probably wanted a little cushion. And so it's very likely that Jesus was less than a year old, but he killed all the babies two years old and under just to make sure he did not miss Jesus. Well, what's really going on here? Just like in the book of Job, we see what's happening on the human level, on the eye level, but Chapters 1 and 2 let us know that there's a lot going on behind the scenes. The book of Revelation actually tells us what's going on here because in chapter 12, um, verse 1, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So that's another way of talking about the birth of Christ and picturing it as this woman, um, Israel, 
especially in the person of Mary, giving birth to a son who would rule. And you've got the dragon who is Satan waiting for the birth, waiting to devour that child. And that's exactly what's playing out in Matthew chapter 2, that it says Herod wanted to destroy him. Satan wanted to devour him, but God wouldn't let it happen because he was going to save his people from their sins and nothing was going to keep him from doing that. And so when we think about this section of the story, why do people not want the gift of Christmas? We feel threatened by the true nature of the gift. There are plenty of people who don't mind singing about baby Jesus, but they don't want anything to do with King Jesus. Why? Because a little baby does not threaten them. They can, they can take a little baby if they have to. They can overcome a little baby. They can't be controlled by a little baby. But a king and a god is something else. And so we could be threatened by it. You know, when you think about um, Herod, you could say he was probably the first Ebenezer Scrooge or the first Grinch. And um, the Grinch who stole Christmas, Dr. Seuss, talked about him. And he says about him, every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. The reality is that there's no doubt that Herod's heart was shriveled up and way too small and his head was not on right because the very person he was trying to destroy was the answer to the longing of his heart. It was what he was pursuing through his own means, his own desire for power and authority, which he would never achieve that way. And so we have to just realize that we can be like Herod in that sense. We can be like the people Jesus talked about in a story that he, he told in Luke 19. These people who said uh, they sent a delegation after this man who was going to become a king. And they said, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's what Herod is saying. I don't want this baby who's been born a king to reign over me. I don't want him to be in charge. Um, in Matthew 25, we see the, the, the uh, one of the ones who was entrusted with um, a stewardship, uh, a talent, and he doesn't do anything with it. And the reason why is because of fear. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours? In other words, I was afraid that if I did what you wanted me to do, that I would lose out. I was afraid if I submitted to your rule and reign, that I wouldn't get what I really want or what I really need. If I let you be king, then I can't be king, and I get the short end of the stick. That's the problem of fear. When we fear God inappropriately, the Bible calls us to fear God, which means to revere him. But we naturally fear God in thinking that he's out to steal, kill, and destroy us. Because that's what Satan says. And he's been saying that from the beginning. The third problem that we have is the problem of pride. And if we just look at the last part of the chapter, verses 19 through 23, uh, it talks about the fact that when Herod died, that... Um, Joseph and Mary and Jesus came back from Egypt and um, they ended up living in Nazareth. And it says that he shall be called a Nazarene. Why is that significant? Well, significant for two reasons. One reason is uh, Nazarene was a small, insignificant place that a lot of people looked down on. They saw it as a place that was to be despised. And the Bible says in Isaiah 53 that he was despised by people. 
So it's a way of saying he was despised as he walked through this world of people created by him. They did not know him and they even despised him. But it's also significant in that he was known as a Nazarene as if he was born there. But he wasn't born there. He was born in Bethlehem. And so later on, you find um, in John chapter 1, you know, uh, Philip finds Nathanael and says, We have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It's a pretty low opinion of Nazareth. And Philip says to him, Come and see. You won't know until you check him out. But when you check him out, you'll find out, yes. Yes, the answer is truly yes. There were were those who would say, they'd look at the life of Jesus and say, hey, he's a Nazarene, and the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. So he can't be the Messiah. So what does that tell us about the issue of pride? It's the issue of the pride of not digging deeper. I've told you the story about the the woman at the airport. I can't remember if I ever um, shared this poem that somebody wrote uh, in light of the story. The poem goes this way. A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shops, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book but happened to see that the man was sitting beside her as bold as could be grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. So she munched the cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I would blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he would do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, Oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat. Then she sought her book, which was also complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned in despair. The others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. I thought about that story again this week in light of the fact that this woman is sitting in the airport, Beside a man, and there's a pack of cookies right between them. And he's eating from that bag, and she's eating from that bag. But she looks at him as someone who's stealing her cookies. And I wondered, why didn't she ever dig a little deeper to find out if that was really her bag of cookies? Or was it his bag of cookies? Was her perception of what was going on really true? Could she have dug a little deeper Could the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders have dug a little deeper? Yeah, he's known as a Nazarene, but is it possible he could have been born in Bethlehem? Did they ever ask him if he was born in Bethlehem? Not that we know of. It doesn't appear that they did. And so we can be so proud as to think, you know what? I think I understand. I think I know. I think I've got all the information I need. Uh, Jesus is not someone that I need to trust. Jesus is not someone I need to receive. Or I can look at other gifts that God has given me and think, you know what? There is no way this is a good thing. This is no way this could ever bring me anything good. And so in our pride, we could never dig deeper. We could never go deeper. We could never explore the possibility of who Jesus really is. We could never explore the possibilities that maybe God has some good reasons for everything he ordains in my life and in your life and in this world. It is a sin not to dig deeper. It's a sin just to assume that we 
know and understand things as we should. Well, as we conclude, let me just highlight the proper response. Obviously, uh, ignorance and fear and pride can keep us from receiving the gift of Jesus as well as the other gifts that God gives us. But we need to follow the example of the wise men. It says in verse 14, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men, the magi, sought Jesus. They paid a price to find him. They worshipped him. They gave him what was fitting. And they did all this out of a great faith where they could see a baby and yet see a king. They could see a baby and yet see God. And that's the only way you can truly worship and celebrate Christmas appropriately the only way we can truly receive the gift that God has given. I have no doubt that as uh, Mark and Nika look at little Jasper, uh, they see a bundle of joy. And we often talk about babies, newborn babies, as being bundles of joy. And I guess what we mean by that is uh, the baby being born brings joy, and we anticipate joy through that baby. The question is, when you look at, Baby Jesus, do you see him as a bundle of joy? Do you see him bringing joy? We might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, There's some other people in this story. What about the mothers who lost their babies at the birth of Jesus? Well, there are those who, like uh, Matthew Henry would say, God's ways are mysterious which doesn't mean um, there's no way we can imagine there was any good reason that it happened. It means uh, we just don't know all that God is up to. But Matthew Henry would say that there, and others like him, that the babies who died at the birth of Jesus honored Jesus and were actually the first martyrs, in a sense, that they died and that they went to heaven and that they received in heaven much greater reward than that than what they would have received if they had stayed on earth. That they did not lose out. That they simply were some of the first to benefit from Christmas. And so it's just another way of saying that we need to dig deeper. Sometimes we just don't understand all the good that God might be up to. Let me close with Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, Jesus tells this story, and he says, Imagine this. Imagine a child coming to his father and asking for uh, a piece of bread or some bread, and that father giving them a stone. What does a stone represent? Something that has no value, at least in terms of what they need and what they want. It's not something they can eat. It's not something that will sustain them physically. It's like a worthless or valueless response. It's a valueless gift. It's a white elephant gift. Or if a child comes to a dad and says, you know, I'd like a fish, and he gives him a snake. That could even be harmful. Not only did he just not give him something that wasn't meeting his need and wasn't of value, but it was something that actually could be harmful depending on what kind of snake it was. That also is a white elephant gift. Is God the kind of God who gives white elephant gifts? Is Jesus a white elephant gift? Is any gift God has given you which includes everything you've received from God in your life, good things and even trials, what we would consider things we want 
and what we would consider things we don't want, all of that has been a gift from God. If, if we had more time, we'd go to James chapter 1. And James chapter 1 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. It's in the context of trials. So I think it certainly is talking about good things like what we would call good things, like the gift of a a baby or the gift of good health, healing from COVID, whatever it might be. Uh, Yes, we see those as good things from God. Uh, Well, what about trials? What about things that are hard and difficult? What about um, Herod killing the babies at the birth of Jesus? Um, Do we see those two as... Gifts that might fall into the category of worthless or harmful? Or do we believe that our Father knows how to give good gifts? He knows what good gifts are. He knows how to give them in the best way possible. Christmas is um, one of those stories that if you really think about all that happened at Christmas, you can walk away a little disturbed. But you need not be. Because the God behind it all is a God who says, I know what is good and I know how to give it. Do not be afraid. Receive my good gifts, which is whatever I give you. Paul could say, what what do you have that you have not received? Nothing. Everything we have, we've received. Meaning it's been given to us by God And therefore, it's intended for our joy. It's intended for our joy in him. And ultimately, the most important gift to receive is Jesus. Because when we receive Jesus, then it sheds a whole new light on the other gifts God gives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Christmas time. Because it truly is the most wonderful time of the year from the perspective of it highlights your heart in some of the most wonderful ways. It highlights your heart to give us what is truly good and it highlights the fact that you do know how to give us what is truly good and that we need not be afraid but we are called to rejoice. So help us, Father, to rejoice more than ever. Help us to fight our fears and help us to honor you this Christmas season more and more. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. If there's someone here this morning who's never received the gift of Jesus as Lord and Savior, please grant them grace to do so. Help them not to see the gift of Jesus as worthless or harmful. And those of us who have received Jesus, help us to believe that everything that you give us is neither worthless nor harmful but is truly a part of your loving us perfectly. And help us to not be afraid. Help us to rejoice. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.